Uh, I'm no expert, but here it is. It is not as a child that I believe and confess Jesus Christ, Dostoevsky writes. My Hosanna is born of a furnace of doubt. It is not as a child that I believe and confess Jesus Christ. My Hosanna is born of a furnace of doubt. This morning, I want us to hear from God about doubt. What it is, what gives it power, what its presence in your life says about who you are in Christ. We're going to talk about doubt. And as we do so, we need to be careful because on the one hand, we don't want to glorify doubt. Because the Bible doesn't glorify doubt. But neither should we condemn it. Because neither does the Bible condemn it. In fact, as soon as you realize that at the heart of what the Bible calls faith is trust in a person and not in something like the Pythagorean theorem, it becomes pretty clear that facing doubt is actually an inextricable part of what it means to believe. Doubt has a place in God's purposes. It isn't neutral. It's a furnace that you read about in the book of Daniel, where they look in and they see you, and then mysteriously they see you not burning. And there is one with you. It's a furnace, but it's a furnace where you're befriended. It's a furnace pregnant with hosannas. So I want to talk about doubt this morning because some of you, I know, live in this furnace. Not that you want to. So if I change the metaphor here, I know that for some of you, doubt is like a splinter in the eye of your heart. And you feel that God has no interest and maybe not even the power to remove that splinter and maybe even worse, God has placed that splinter there himself. Now, if that describes you, this message is for you. Our gospel reading that Aubrey read records one of the New Testament's climactic confessions about who Jesus is. And what I don't want you to miss is that when we hear these words, my Lord and my God. What I don't want you to miss is that that confession comes from the lips of a disciple familiar with doubt. Thomas's Hosanna literally is born of a furnace of doubt. Figuratively. (laughs) So we need to talk about doubt. We don't need to glorify it as if it's sophistication Neither do we need to stigmatize it as if it's just unfaithfulness. What we need to do is we need to ask God what he thinks about doubt. So as we turn to the Bible, specifically John 20 here for answers, I want to guide us through three headings. If you don't pick these up right at the beginning, don't worry. I'll use them as signposts along the way. Here they are. Number one, the loneliness of doubt. Number two, the universality of doubt. Number three, the work of doubt. So heading one, the loneliness of doubt. Let me set the scene for us. It's been one week 
Eight days later is, is an idiom here. It means one week since Jesus appeared to the ten disciples. That's the twelve minus Thomas and Judas. The week previously, back in verse 19, the disciples had barricaded themselves inside this room after the death of their master. They're, they're utterly terrified that the same leaders who engineered a cruel death sentence for the Lord Jesus, they're going to do the same for them. They're terrified. So they'd hidden. But notice that Thomas is gone. It's not quite clear why that's the case. Maybe Thomas is absent because he's got more backbone than the other disciples. Back in chapter 11, Thomas had said, I will follow you to the death. I'll follow you. I'll die for you. I'll follow you into battle. And, you know, unlike Peter, we've not seen him totally, you know, run up against the shoals on that. We have no reason to think that he was uh, insincere or given the opportunity wouldn't have done that. On the other hand, Thomas could have been out doing the grocery shopping. We really just don't know. What is clear is that on that day, when Jesus came in verse 19, Thomas was gone. And as a result, he didn't get to experience what the other disciples got to experience. Okay, that's the first thing I want to observe. Now, here's the second. Notice that when Jesus first came to see the disciples, back in verse 20, he offered to show them his hands and his side. Now, I find this detail really interesting. And to be honest, I'd never registered this prior to, I've preached this passage before, I've never registered it in the way that I did preparing this time. This is interesting because it alerts us to what Thomas was almost certainly feeling when he shows up. What's going on in Thomas's heart? Just imagine, imagine you're Thomas. The one who is willing to follow Jesus to the death, right? Jesus has appeared to the other disciples. He's shown them his wounds. He's given them and not you visible, tangible proof of his risen presence. And you feel, I would think, left out. So with with that in mind, if you can put yourself in Thomas' shoes, then listen to how he replies to the other disciples in verse 25. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. See, I think that here Thomas isn't laying down arbitrary requirements that Jesus has to meet before Thomas is going to believe. I think he's laying down particular criteria. Namely, he wants to experience the very gift uh, that he felt like he had been denied, unlike all the other disciples except for Judas. So put yourself in Thomas's shoes. Thomas had been ready to follow Jesus into battle to the death. Imagine then that your master, the one for whom you are willing to die, ignores you. Imagine that Jesus offered a great gift to your friends, but at such a time and in such a way as to deny it to you. How would you feel? John is showing us that God understands how we would feel. Or if you're the person that this sermon is for, how you do feel. Thomas is now uh, back among the other disciples, right, in our reading, uh, starting at verse 24. And they've been telling him, and, and the verb in the original language suggests they've been doing it over and over again. We've seen the Lord. They've been badgering him. Maybe, again, we don't know, maybe for days. 
with their report of Jesus' wounds of his hand and side. And perhaps, although this is speculation, perhaps he resents them because he's not been given the opportunity to experience what they experienced back in verse 20. Joy. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Have you, have you ever felt resentful when a friend was rejoicing over a gift that you had lost or never received? Have you ever experienced the kind of gnawing envy that poisons your ability to rejoice with those who rejoice? Do you know what it's like for someone else's joy to do nothing for you but stir up your sorrow? For someone else's gifts to remind you only of your loss? That's Thomas. And that's doubt. Doubt is lonely. It isolates you. It embitters you. It turns someone else's joy into your sorrow. Do you reckon why that's when, uh, when verse 25 rolls around, Thomas responds to the other disciples so aggressively. We've seen the Lord, they say. They keep saying. But Thomas responds, that's all well and good. But unless Jesus shows himself to me, unless he shows his side to me, I refuse to believe. What I want you to see here is the nature of Thomas's doubt. I don't think Thomas is necessarily demanding evidence because he doubts that Jesus actually rose from the dead, although that may well be part of his doubt. I think Thomas's main problem with Jesus can't be solved with evidence. It's deeply, immovably, distressingly personal. Unless Jesus shows himself to me, I will not believe. That's doubt. It's deep, it's immovable, it's painful, and it's all of those things because it's isolating. And God understands this. He gets it. Jesus, sovereign, risen, wise Jesus. He knows how Thomas is going to act when he feels like the odd man out. I have a difficult time, maybe you do too, anticipating the consequences of some of my social interactions. Jesus is not this way. He knows what's going to happen. It almost seems as if Jesus is stirring something up in Thomas for his benefit or for ours. Doubt is lonely, and the Lord gets this. And I think this leads us into uh, a second heading for our comfort here. Second heading, the universality of doubt. Again, I want to give you the point right up front. The main thing I want you to see here under this second heading is that, yes, doubt is lonely. But even though doubt is lonely, the doubting Christian is never alone. Thomas gets such a bad rap, doesn't he? He's the only disciple who gets a lousy nickname, as far as I know. John, John and James, sons of thunder, you know? Peter, the rock. I mean, what a cool nickname. <laughs> Doubting Thomas. It just leaves something to be desired, doesn't it? Thomas takes the brunt of this, and, and, and I don't think that that's what John intends. Thomas gets a bad rap. We pay so much attention to doubting Thomas that we miss how unflatteringly John portrays all the other 
disciples. Back in verse 19, like we said, the other 10 had barricaded themselves inside for fear of the Jews. Jesus came despite the doors being locked and stood among them. And by the way, that psalm, lift up your heads, O gates. You ever cried that out in prayer? Jesus came, the doors being locked, and stood among them. And and then he did these marvelous things that Wilson preached on last week. You preached last week, didn't you? Yeah, Wilson preached on last week. He gave them his peace. He assured them of, of their forgiveness. He sent them out into the world, calling them to imitate the Son in the high and glorious mission entrusted to him by the Father. And then, gloriously, the disciples went out into all the world, preaching boldly in the face of persecution, loving their enemies to the point of death, baptizing and discipling new believers from all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Except, oh wait, they didn't. Instead, as verse 26 shows us, even Jesus, even though Jesus has assured them of their forgiveness, equipped them for their mission in the world, and sent them out, they haven't gone anywhere. They're still stuck. As my kids say, no luck, still stuck. They haven't gone anywhere. The doors are still locked. They've been sent but they're stuck, and John's emphasizing this. That's why he repeats his observation about the doors being locked, uh, first in verse 19, then it crops up again in verse 20. Doubting Thomas is not the only doubting disciple. The other shows us something. The other disciples may have had faith in Jesus. Day was November 11th, 1918, or they may believe in us, like you for whom this sermon is particularly meant. They were still being invited to true belief, which is only possible in what Dostoevsky calls the furnace of doubt. So we've seen the loneliness of doubt, how doubt isolates us, and we've seen the universality of doubt, which is how it impacts every believer. But I want to look finally at what exactly doubt is meant to do in the life of a believer. So here's heading three, the work of doubt. And again, As has been my custom, let me give you the answer right away. The work of doubt is to lead you to Jesus. The work of doubt is to lead you to Jesus. This is a pretty brief sermon, and before I move on and draw it to a close, I want us to retrace our steps. We've seen, haven't we, that doubt is isolating but also that while doubt is lonely, the doubter's never alone. All believers are, by definition, doubters because the presence of doubt is exactly what makes belief belief rather than mere factual knowledge. And the question this raises is, why did God choose faith as the way of responding to his rescue mission? Wouldn't it have been easier if God basically operated like Amazon? You know, if if his plan to reconcile all things to himself had taken the form of a survey to complete or an app to download or an algorithm to follow, why does Christianity center on this messy, risky act of faith? If faith is really different from factual knowledge, then it means that the experience of doubt not only has isolating power and universal reach, it also has a redemptive purpose. Doubt leads us to the person of Jesus. I think what's brilliant about this is that 
This means that Dostoevsky's description of himself is actually true of every one of us. And in fact, we could even, we could press it farther. Not only can hosannas be born in the furnace of doubt, hosannas can only be born in the furnace of doubt. I don't mean that what I'm not saying here is that we can only become better Christians when we question God's ways or when we become more skeptical, not at all. What I mean is that trust in Jesus happens in the context of real life where we have to decide whether or not Jesus is really trustworthy. Whether we can go out into the world in strength because of his presence. If the only doubt that you've ever wrestled with is doubt over things of a factual nature, of a historical nature. And those are important things. But if that's the case, then you've not yet experienced the most fundamentally human kind of doubt, the kind which Jesus reaches down into and transforms into faith, the kind which is essential to understanding what it means to believe. What the Bible calls faith or belief, it isn't just assent to data, although it includes that, right? We say the creed. It isn't simply a ringing affirmation of the truth, although it includes that too. It is, faith is fundamentally what we do with Jesus in the furnace of doubt. Doubt has a purpose in God's hands. It's the furnace of doubt where you encounter the Savior, just like we see depicted in the book of Daniel. And what a Savior you find there. I'm begging you, if you don't know him, look at him now. John has set him on display for you to see here. He's, he's the true creature and the true creator. He's the true human He's like Adam offering his rib for the life of Eve. In the same way, Jesus, the true Adam, offers his side. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it into my side. And can I just say that whatever act, but he travels a lot. He's a professional woodworker, right? He's, he's, there's some force. There is some physical substance to Jesus. Knuckle. He has more for you than you think. He offers you more than answers to philosophical puzzles, although he will give you many of those. He offers you his own life as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. But on the other hand, the savior that you meet in the furnace is not only the true human, he is also the true God, the creator. Notice that Jesus does here what only God can do. And we've been prepared for this, by the way, all the way from the beginning of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Aubrey reminds us, Mary sees Jesus mistaking him for the gardener. And then as Wilson talked about last week, Jesus does what only God, well, reenacts an act of what God did in Genesis 2.17 by breathing out his spirit. We've been tiptoeing forward to a moment. Jesus has breathed on his disciples. He's been identified as the gardener. And all along the way, 
Jesus has been preparing Thomas and his other disciples to witness the power of his creative word. And that power is on display this morning in this passage because now we see Jesus doing what only the creator can, granting eternal life by the power of his word. Verse, and it's a back and forth. Verse 27, do not disbelieve, but believe. And just like in the beginning, God spoke and creation came to be. So here Jesus speaks. And by the power of his word, there is belief. Verse 28, my Lord and my God. Are you living in the furnace of doubt this morning? And if you are, this sermon is for you. Take comfort. Like Thomas, like all the other disciples, you are being given something far better than the gift of sight leading to certainty. You're being given the gift of faith, as verse 31 promises, leading to everlasting life. True life cannot be found in the vault of certainty. It's in the furnace of doubt. That is the only place that's pregnant with hosannas. Are you living in the furnace of doubt this morning? Then hear the blessing of your Lord and your God when he says to you, blessed are you who have not seen and yet have believed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.